Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. My name is Fatima and I'll be hosting today's podcast. I was lucky enough to sit down with Nazmina Dunji to talk about what it's like to learn Arabic in its different forms and the most effective ways of using the language to connect with the Quran. We spoke about tailoring learning to our goals, understanding the meaning of the Quran versus experiencing its essence through the Arabic language, and Nazmina's experiences with professional translation of Islamic texts. Nazmina is the founder of Arabic Online and is a busy, multitasking mother of four children. She's a polyglot who speaks seven languages and Arabic is her favourite. She's also the author of 50 Quranic Comforts for Moms and a published translator of many works from Arabic to English. She completed her degree in Arabic at SOAS University of London, and after spending a year in Damascus University consolidating her knowledge of the Arabic language and rhetoric, or Balagha, she went on to pursue further Islamic studies at Jami'at al-Zahra in Qom. She headed the Department of Arabic Studies at Al-Mahdi Institute in Birmingham for several years, developing curricula in Arabic language and grammar, French and English as a foreign language, and is a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Linguists. Having taught Arabic in classrooms across North London for many years, she is super excited about bringing her courses online to help people connect to the Qur'an on a deeper level through its beautiful language. So let's jump right in. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Assalamu alaikum and ahla wa sahla. Um, thank you so much for joining me. Um, how are you? Alaikum salam wa Thank you for having me. Alhamdulillah, I'm good. And I'm all the happier to meet a fellow SOAS graduate, especially one who did Arabic. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation as well. Um, yeah, especially about learning Arabic, all the challenges and opportunities that, that come with that. Um, so before we start, I actually just had a super quick question to get us warmed up. Um, so what's one word you'd use to describe your relationship with the Arabic language? In Arabic or in English? Oh, whichever you prefer. <laughs> Um, I'd say passionate. Yeah, that's probably the first word that comes to mind. Beautiful. Because it's what, it was a passion for languages and literature that led me to it. And it's the same passion that keeps me going and just keeps me fascinated with it. That's really beautiful. I love that. Um, yeah. And yeah, I guess it's probably a driver as well to mm. keep going. Um, yeah, that's awesome. So, I mean, I'd love to know more about sort of your journey with learning Arabic. Would you mind telling us a bit about what that experience was like? Okay. Um, so first of all, the I did it at degree level. And the, the thing that pushed me to take it up at degree level at a time when nobody kind of took languages at university, you know, you'd find the odd person doing French or Spanish or and usually people would go into kind of teaching modern foreign languages. Mm. Um, but it was actually a trip to Iran. So I went to Iran when I was 17 um, and just kind of full of thirst for Islam and Islamic knowledge. And, you know, I'd come across these books that had been translated into English and I just knew that they weren't kind of doing justice to the original. Mm. We met scholars who would speak in Arabic or Farsi and you know, I just knew so much was being lost in translation. And I'm somebody, you know, I, alhamdulillah, I speak multiple languages and, you know, alhamdulillah, I've always been good at languages. So it was just, I, I really wanted to, to take it up further. Um, and I was advised by um, a very kind of wise senior member of our community 
when I wanted to do Farsi actually to begin with and he advised me to take up Arabic um, and so I did and I took up Arabic at Arabic language and literature at SOAS um, and one of the other motivating factors was, was the Quran the fact that when I was doing English literature at A level and you know we'd examine you know Shakespeare's plays and we'd examine yeah. Chaucer and we'd examine all this and and I loved it, but I felt like I'd read the Quran and the English translation and I just couldn't see what was special about it, you know, and that, it really bugged me, you know, that in a sense we were told that this was li the literary miracle, you know, that uh, the miracles sent by Allah always came to challenge the intellects of the people of the time, you know, so Prophet Musa's miracles were to do with magic because that's what the people were into and Prophet Isa's miracle was, you know, curing the lepers and the blind and things like that because it was advances in medicine that was that were prevalent at the time and that it was literature you know at the time of the prophet and but I couldn't see it like how was this a literary marvel you know it's not until you see the context so I wanted to actually learn about pre-islamic literature what did it look like and mm. how was the Quran different you know so I actually did that I actually learned you know did pre-islamic Arab poetry and looked at the literature because I wanted to see with my own eyes why the Quran was so special um, and just to, to kind of curb that that enthusiasm and you know kind of satisfy my my inquisition so that's why I started doing it and then I've been immersed in it ever since alhamdulillah you know I've had I didn't go in with the mindset of becoming a translator but it took me down the path of translation um, so, alhamdulillah, I've, I've had the opportunity to translate many Islamic books from Arabic into English. It took me down the path of teaching Arabic, which I've been doing for many years. So, alhamdulillah, you know, I can't thank Allah enough that he led me to Arabic and that that became my vocation. That's amazing. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, and subhanAllah, it's so nice to see how many different doors that's opened for you as well. Um, yeah, I guess I wanted to just touch on, you know, you mentioned wanting to look more into the Hadith literature and the Qur'an especially and seeing why it's special. Um, this might be an obvious question, but um, is that why you went into classical Arabic specifically? Um, has that always been your interest? So when I, when I at degree level, when, when I studied it, and this was over 20 years ago and so on, so things might have changed, I don't know. Um, but we were exposed to all sorts of Arabic. So we learned what's known as modern standard Arabic, um, classical Arabic. They're not that different in their grammar, actually. There's very few differences between, you know, mm. the really classical and the modern standard. It's more the vocab. So the vocab varies in the modern standard in that you're using everyday vocab and, you know, journalese and things to do with economics and business and the United Nations and all that kind of thing, whereas classical vocab is, you know, much more the kind of vocab you find in the Qur'an and Hadith. And we also learned spoken because then, you know, we would spend our year abroad in, in an Arab country. Um, so we learned all forms in terms of the literature, you know, we were exposed to pre-Islamic literature, Islamic, you know, poetry and stuff, poetry from the Umayyad and Abbasid times, then modern novels, modern poetry, um, poetry to do with you know the intifada and the and the Palestinian resistance and all of that so I've had exposure to all types um, 
and yeah, it's it's the Quranic that you know that I keep coming back to and that I love the most. Um, simply because you see how different it is, you know, it's, and people have debated for centuries, you know, is the Quran prose or is it poetry, you know, and they try and classify it because it's got that rhythm and rhyme and the shorter surahs, but then you've got the long passages and like Surah Al-Baqarah and Surah Al-A'raf, um, and in the end, you know, throughout centuries, they haven't been able to come to a conclusion, they just have to conclude that, you know, the Quran is neither prose nor poetry, it's just Quran. Hundred um, percent. There is just something so special about the Quran, and I think you're right. I think anyone who has studied Arabic could see that um, there is just the Quran is just it's it it stands alone. It's its own text. Um, yeah, that's really. Thanks for clarifying the difference between the, the different types of Arabic. Um, yeah, when when you were saying about MSA, I I remembered that I think the first word we learned in Arabic at SOAS was like Ra'is al Wazara, which is like. Um, yeah, like Prime Minister, yeah, um, totally. which is so political and you can tell that sometimes it's a bit aimed at diplomats, but yes, um, exactly. yeah, I, I found that quite funny. But um, yeah, just just speaking a bit more about the classical, because um, it is notoriously the most difficult sort of version of Arabic to learn. And you mentioned the, the vocabulary, um, and this is something that I also picked up, um, yeah, I think when I was studying pre-Islamic texts, one thing that came up so often was there were so many different, very highly specific words for something like camel. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, how how do you think someone wanting to learn Quranic Arabic could get to grips with all of the different vocabulary? Because there is just so much of it and it's so specific. Mm. So I think this is where people start to get lost in thinking that they have to learn everything there is to know about Arabic or everything to do with classical Arabic. Um, whereas when you actually look at the Quran, 20% of the words are repeated 80% of the time, mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of high frequency words. You could actually learn 300 words and be able to understand 70% of the Quran. So it's not, if our focus is learning Quran, like learning Arabic for the sake of Quran, there is not actually that much that we need to learn, right? There are lots of unique individual words mentioned only once in the whole Quran in the 30th juz and in the 39th juz, right? Words that you'll never come across elsewhere in the Quran. But that's fine because we can look them up, you know, or we can learn them. But to actually get to grips with about 70 to 80% of the Quran doesn't take that much effort. Yes, if we start learning all the different words for camel, which don't actually feature in the Quran, I think yes. there's only a couple of words for camel that come up. But yes, if you wanted to, you know, go that far and learn the word for a two-year-old camel and a two-year-old teething camel and a three-year-old camel and a three-year-old female <laughs> teething camel, then yes, of course, it's going to get, you know, too much. But Quranic Arabic is not actually that difficult or that much. Um, it's just a case of being focused with our approach. And I think that's where people, you know, get lost. We think we have to do a degree or we think we have to learn everything there is to know about Arabic or that you have to learn how to speak first. And this is what I find that learning Arabic here, unless, you know, somebody is really passionate about using Arabic every day or they want to be able to read newspapers and novels and, and things like that or they want to work with Arabic in the workplace, there's actually no need, mm. you know, 
for our needs or for the needs of the sisters in the community who mainly want to understand Quran and du'as, the approach is really focused because you're not learning Arabic to be able to speak. So, you know, oral practice goes out of the window. You're not learning Arabic to be able to write letters or reports, right? So it's really just focused on reading, comprehension and listening. So when you hear it being recited, you understand it. And also the vocabulary is very focused, the grammar is very focused. Um, so yeah, it's not actually as mind-boggling as one would think. Mm. That, that, that's so, yeah, that sounds so much easier when you break it down like that. Um, and yeah, it, it makes sense um, that you don't actually need all of that. Um, and yeah, I guess that, that you don't need a degree as well. Um, but I guess for those who are looking to understand those other parts and yeah, wider applications of the Arabic language. Um, yeah, I mean, for those looking to do a degree, maybe, um, looking to do a career path, I mean, you're a successfully published translator. Um, yeah, what would your advice be to those people? I would say um, to go into Arabic as a field is very beneficial in lots of different ways. Um, but unfortunately the translation field is one that's suffering at the moment because it's not future-proof. What I mean by that is, so I think I think let's look at it in two, two separate ways. We've got the Islamic literature mm. where there's a dire shortage of good translators, right? There's lots of texts that we have that could do with a good English translation, but it's underfunded, mm. right? So that's a field where we have a shortage, we need translators, but the funding isn't there. Because, and I guess that's because people don't see the value in funding translations sometimes, otherwise they would fund it. Then you've got the other side, the non-Islamic literature or, you know, translation agencies, documents, um, you know, legal documents, medical, there's, there's a whole field out there mm. that needs translation. However, it's not future-proof in that now machine translations are rife. So what happens is if you, if you work for an agency, for example, they'll stipulate that you have to use a specific software. Yeah. So there's about four or five different softwares that are in use. The most common one is one called Trados. <clears throat> and what it does is it's really clever in that it has a massive memory that stores all previous translations. So all you have to have just feed the document in, it'll churn out a translation based on memory, and you only get paid for what you uniquely translate from scratch that's not already in the translation memory, right? Or for any restructuring you do. So chances are medical, legal, all these other documents have already done before, that they've been done before, newspaper articles have been done before. And by translating using these softwares, you're constantly shooting yourself in the foot mm -hmm. and other translators because it gets saved, yeah. right? So there's very little scope for innovation. So the innovation and the creativity comes in literary translations, right? Novels and poetry, and yeah. everybody, everybody wants to go into those, but it's saturated because there's no money or there's no success in the, the regular fields that people were used to translating in because machine does it all, mm -hmm. right? So it's a, it's a career that's not really future-proof. Interpreting is different, which is the spoken word translations. There is still a need for those although machines are slowly, slowly <laughs> replacing those two. Um, but I'd say if somebody's passionate about the languages and passionate about, about Arabic, 
um, you know, not to let that stop them. There's, there are, I mean, lot, the, the world's, you know, we're, in, we're living in a village now, a global village. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and yeah, if for nothing else than to get closer to the Qur'an, if they have that, that kind of passion to really discover it as a literary text, yeah. it's, it's something that I've only benefited from. I've never regretted mm. doing it. Yeah, <clears throat> that's such a beautiful way of putting it. Um, yeah, that there's no like sort of regret in um, learning it just to get closer to the Qur'an because that's always an opportunity that's going to be there. Um, but yeah, just in terms of like your experience with translating um, like hadith literature and Islamic texts, um, how do you feel um, it's, it's different or challenging in terms of conveying the meaning? Because I guess with any Islamic text, um, especially the Qur'an, but um, perhaps just ones that you've translated, um, there is a huge element of, of context and a lot of background reading and research. And um, I guess knowing Arabic isn't necessarily the only, um, yeah, I guess, prerequisite to be able to understand a text. Um, so, yeah, how, how would you go about doing that? How did you go about doing that? Okay, so yeah, very good question. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely. Translation is not just the process of conveying from one language into another. So there's there's a lot of research that goes into it. Um, so first, before I would even approach, even start translating, I would read the, the text cover to cover to be able to understand the author's mindset, the target audience's mindset, you know, what were the aims in writing that work or what was the final outcome of it <clears throat> to understand, you know, the style of the author, the way they write mm. um, and to understand the ultimate target audience. Like who's who are the readers who are going to be reading this translation? What kind mm. of level is it? Are we to retain that formal register that the original text was written in or is it to be understood in a more kind of um, fluid rendition rather than a literal translation word for word mm -hmm. so you've got to know all these aims you know what the point of it is before you even start translating and then you know you go about convey conveying the the, the content the meaning um, and depending on what kind of text it is so say for example if it's a hadith I'll be extra careful obviously I'll always be extra careful but extra careful to retain as much of the original mm. kind of structure the meaning not just kind of render it into English right but retain that um, so yeah it's it is really challenging and sometimes your brain just hurts <laughs> sometimes you get stuck on a sentence for days you know and it's so hard to find just the, the correct kind of phrase or a matching idiom or something in English that will express that best um, and sometimes you know it'll just flow and you can just do churn out pages and pages um, so the process itself there's there's actual theory that goes behind translation and actual training that goes mm. behind translation it's not just you have to know two languages to be able to translate yeah um, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, kind of know-how and skill behind being able to do that mm. um, and yeah unfortunately you know it's not it's not valued as, as a skill like that um, and that's why I think I think translators even even from literary texts when they translate they don't get royalties from the sale of a book mm. um, or anything like that because 
it's not seen as a, you know an actual endeavor that's that's so time consuming and yeah. so profound Gosh. that's that's so crazy um but wow it like yeah it sounds super difficult but also it must be so rewarding as well um uh, it does sound like a huge responsibility but um yeah mashallah i think um yeah translators are definitely underappreciated especially um when you get hold of a really good translation it's so appreciated i think um so yeah i mean thank you for your work alhamdulillah it's um, all Allah I, I you know i can't thank him enough for putting me in a position where you know i get to read and translate a hadith of the Bayt. it's like what what more could one want alhamdulillah um yeah, I guess sort of going going maybe back a step um, before translating it, the stage that you're talking about where you try to understand, um, yeah, where the author's coming from, and I saw I I sort of wanted to touch on understanding the Quran and Islamic text generally. Um, do you think knowing Arabic is like a prerequisite to understanding these texts, like? I, I know you kind of touched on it earlier, but um, if you were to read the Qur'an in translation, for example, or any of these texts in translation, do you think you can still understand the meaning? Um, and also, given that Arabic is not the only prerequisite to understanding a text from another angle, um, what more can people do to connect with the Qur'an apart from Arabic? Okay, so firstly, I'd say if any... For anyone who wants to study Islamic texts in general to any kind of serious level, beyond just you know bedside reading, mm. but I would highly, highly recommend um, learning Arabic because it just opens up so much more understanding than what translations can convey. Mm. As a translator, I know the limitations, and I know that that you know Arabic is a difficult language to convey accurately in English. Um, and I know stuff gets lost in translation so yeah for anybody wanting to seriously study Islamic studies even for their own selves and not to become anything mm. you know even if it's not formal Hausa studies or to become an alim or, I would say you know it's it's a valuable tool to have as far as the Quran goes see we've got to understand that the Quran being a literary miracle it's very different to just any other text, mm. right? So the fact that Allah chose to reveal his final message that will last until the end of times, and he chose Arabic for it, means there's a reason why, right? Mm. Arabic can contain those meanings. But the Quran is made up of the content of you know, what, what the Quran is saying, what the verses are saying, but also the style mm. and the essence so it's not just the meaning. Yes, other languages can capture the meaning, definitely, right? We know what the Quran says, we've been able to derive rulings from it, we have a whole religion that's, you know, come out of the guidance in the Quran. Absolutely we can we can understand the meanings. Yeah. But we what we lose out on is the style of the author, mm. the intent of the author. Yes. Why did the author use two different words for the same thing? Why are there four different words for heart in the Quran? Mm. You know? Why are there four different words for snake in the Quran, you know? Yeah. Like why in the same story of Prophet Musa, Allah actually uses three different words for the same stuff that turned into a snake. And you think to yourself, well, 
in the story that we've grown up being told and that we read in the English translations, there's no there's no distinction no. between different types of snake, is yeah. there? Not at all. But these little, little subtleties is what the English misses out, right? These are the things that, you know, the style, the rhythm, the rhyme, the alliteration, the assonance, all of these things can't can't be conveyed. And that's the it's the literary marvel, the 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 beauty, the essence of it that we lose out on when we read it in English translations. So in that sense, we you know, we, we miss out. In the content and the meaning, no, you know, that it translations are able to convey that. Having said that though, there's over a hundred and I think 170 odd translations, English translations that have been done over the years mm. of the Quran. So people have attempted in some form or other, complete or incomplete, because people have felt that, okay, my predecessors' translations haven't done justice, so I need to reinvent the wheel. And then somebody comes along and says, no, no, this was, mm. you know, this is not good enough, I need to redo it. Yeah. Until today, the Quran is still being translated in English because people are not satisfied with what they have. And that's no fault of the translators necessarily, yeah. right? It's just like that. And that's one of the things that I'm really interested in at the moment and that, that I read a lot about is the untranslatability of the Quran. Yes. You know, which aspects of it are untranslatable and why? Yeah, um, yeah, and that, that's so true because there are some things that just... I think even between languages um, in general, yeah. there are some things that are just really hard to translate. Um, jokes, for example, something really simple just wouldn't necessarily make sense if you translate yeah. it. I guess that's where the whole idea comes from of lost in translation. Yes. Um, but yeah, um, thanks for shedding light on that. And um, yeah, I, yeah, I do think that Arabic is, it is a very good way of connecting with the Qur'an. Um, but not just any Arabic, specifically Quranic Arabic. Mm. Um, so I actually wanted to ask you about um, your course. Um, you have a platform, Arabic Online. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, can you tell us a bit about that? And um, yeah, how do you help people to understand the Quran? Okay, so before Arabic Online was born, um, I was teaching Arabic in classrooms, just and, and Quranic Arabic to sisters um, in the community um, and something I enjoy very very much and you know I really enjoy that contact with my students um, and if you know in their okay I am passionate about Arabic but in their words they really benefited and found it a life-changing experience and found that it you know increased their faith made them kind of made their their families their lives more quran centric they started to devote kind of more importance to the quran as a mm. result and lots of other things but what would happen in these classes is that sisters would fall behind because the class would move on and they'd have all sorts of commitments or illnesses or things happening at home and i always made a point of audio recording all the classes right so there'd always be an audio recording that i'd put in our whatsapp group afterwards but still, you know, there's no visual there. They can't see the whiteboard. I take pictures of the whiteboard. And even then, you yeah. know, there was always that, that sense of losing out, missing out, pressure mm -hmm. of catching up. I had, a, I had a student who came all the way from South London with a toddler to attend classes wow. in North London. 
and you know the dedication of some of these sisters was just so admirable and you'd have people express that you know they wanted to attend but either the location was too far or the timing was not suitable and things mm -hmm. like that so I had the idea in my head that it'd be amazing to have an online course you know that was self-paced that they could you know do in their own time that they weren't restricted to time zones and all of that and then the pandemic happened mm. and I had no choice but to put my classes online, you know. Um, and so I started working on, on doing that and created Arabic online. Um, so Arabic with a Q for Quranic. Um, started the Instagram account on a whim. I wasn't even on Instagram. I didn't even know how it worked. I was so kind of in my own. I was, I was just an ostrich with my head in the sand, you know. And, um, and Alhamdulillah, it really took off and people... <clears throat> the you know the signature thing is Quranic word of the word of the week. So every Friday I share a new word and go into the root meanings and go into you know how it's used in the Quran, how many times it features and stuff. And just so even if someone's not taking a, a course, that people can still benefit in the smallest way possible by just learning a word a week. Now obviously that's not enough, you know, yeah. to to really get to grips. Because it's not, it's just words, it's not the grammar or anything like that. But Alhamdulillah, people are benefiting all over the world. Um, and I launched the first course, the first level um, last year of, um, it was called Arabic Online for Busy Women. Um, so it's divided into four levels, Quest 1, 2, 3 and 4. And so currently I've got a cohort that are finishing Quest 1 and moving on to Quest 2. Well, I've already got students in Quest 3 who've kind of raced ahead. Wow. And they're doing really well. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, alhamdulillah, the, the response has been amazing. The, the success stories have been amazing. I've just been bowled over by, you know, how people appreciate the need for it and, and how dedicated they are. Um, to it so yeah alhamdulillah I'm just making a few improvements to that first first um, course and inshallah plan to relaunch it very soon wow so yeah inshallah that's brilliant um, yeah I, I just I love the idea I love the concept um, behind it and yeah alhamdulillah it's so good that so many people are benefiting um, yeah, I know people who follow your account as well and, and really enjoy the, the word, the words that you share. Um, but yeah, I was I was also just wondering in terms of, um, yeah, for, for parents as well who want their children to kind of be in an environment where they're exposed to Arabic. Um, yeah, do you have any tips um, for them? How, how can we make Arabic a part of children's lives if that's what what we want mm, so I don't think I'm the best person to answer this I've tried with my own children <laughs> when they were younger um, and it's it's difficult in the living in an environment where everybody else around them doesn't speak it is very difficult yeah. and it's also not a subject that's been offered in madrasa mm. um, maybe you know once or twice you know they've dabbled in it or something like that but I found that the efforts had to come from me alone yeah so I've bought Arabic books and Arabic resources and all of that and you'd have to be really diligent to immerse themselves in that and have either one parent 
who kind of reads to them only in Arabic or speaks to them in Arabic if you want them to pick up the spoken. Mm. Or, for example, a particular activity that's done only in Arabic or a particular time of the day that's only in Arabic or something like that where it's a regular thing mm. because dabbling in it and doing it as a one-off or just once a week, you know, I, I don't know if it has sticking power. You know, it's like it's like when you do French at school, yeah. you know. For, for when the French is, you know, concentrated at GCSE time, it's in your head. The minute you finish, it's gone, yeah. you know. Yeah. So I guess, I guess it depends on the aims, the objectives of having that. It's definitely beneficial to introduce them to the language as early as possible when they're little. And there's no shortage of resources out there. There's mm. way more now than there used to be when my kids were little. Um, there's lots of bilingual books. The library has lots of Arabic and English books. Yes. Um, so yeah, there are lots of resources out there now. So I definitely encourage it. But in terms of, you know, tailoring their environment, I don't know, maybe hanging out with, with like-minded parents, you know, having, having a little Arabic playgroup or something yeah. um, would be worthwhile. I definitely, I mean, I'm all for introducing it in madrasa and things like that from early on. Um, because then by the time they get to teenagehood, you know, they've they've got the building blocks, they're familiar with lots of the words in the Qur'an. Yeah. So even if it's done on a casual basis, just where they build up a whole repertoire of vocabulary, even then it's still better than nothing. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it's always good to get a head start. Definitely, um, definitely. Yeah, thank you. Um, I guess just final question before we end. Um, what what would be your one main piece of advice for those seeking to connect with the Qur'an through the Arabic language? Um, so my main piece of advice is not to delay it, not to be daunted and think you're not good at languages or, you know, you don't have to learn to speak it. You know, mm. a lot of people's hang up is, but I can't speak it, you know. I'd say don't worry and just go for it. And I'd also say not to take... Arabic is a crash course. Okay. Um, that's where it doesn't stick. You know how so many people learn Arabic and then they hit a hump or it just gets too much and then they leave it. Yeah. You know, and that's because that's not the way to study a language. Mm -hmm. Logically, that's not how you study a language. It's something sustained and slow and steady and you know that you maintain over a long period of time. So that's the best way to do it. Kind of slow and steady in small doses. Um, but not to put it off till, you know, tomorrow, next week, next year. I would say definitely go for it because any little you understand of the Qur'an is still more than you did yesterday, mm. you know. And there's just so much joy when you open the Qur'an and you can understand an ayah before you can even read the translation. You know, when you understand what you're saying in du'as before you've looked at the projector to see what the English translation says. Mm. When you can actually engross yourself in a du'a and really feel it and not keep losing that yeah. that emotion because you're having to read the translation you know or or you know you can you can really see the the beauty and majesty of the Quran and experience it as you read it in Arabic so I, I, that's I'm of course I'm biased because I teach <laughs> it you know there's, there's no way around it but I would say I would definitely say <clears throat> that it will change your relationship with the Quran there are of course other ways of connecting with the Quran. There's Quran journaling, there's reflecting on the verses, even through the English, you know. 
but I would say that one main way is learning Arabic. Sant, yeah, thank you so much. And I can really see um, um, from your first question of the, you said your your relationship with Arabic was passionate. I can really see that coming through. (laughs) Um, So yeah, um, no, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Nizmina for taking the time today um, and yeah for our listeners looking to connect with the Quran um, especially in these holy months then um, be sure to check out Arabic online um, and yeah thank you so much again for joining me and pleasure thank you for having me shukran